The Baker Street Readers present A Case of Identity From the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes by Arthur Conan Doyle. My dear fellow, said Sherlock Holmes, as we sat on either side of the fire in his lodgings at Baker Street. Life is infinitely stranger than anything which the mind of man could invent. We would not dare to conceive the things which are really mere commonplaces of existence. If we could fly out that window hand in hand, hover over this great city, gently remove the roofs and peep in at the queer things going on, the strange coincidences, the plannings, the cross-purposes, the wonderful chain of events working through generations and leading to the most outré results, it would make all fiction with its conventionalities and foreseen conclusions most stale and unprofitable. And yet I am not convinced of it. The cases which come to light in the papers are, as a rule, bold enough and vulgar enough. We have in our police reports realism pushed to its extreme limits, and yet the result is, it must be confessed, neither fascinating nor artistic. A certain selection and discretion must be used in producing a realistic effect. This is wanting in the police report, where more stress is laid, perhaps, upon the platitudes of the magistrate than upon details, which to an observer contain the vital essence of the whole matter. Depend on it. There is nothing so unnatural as the commonplace. I smiled and shook my head. I can quite understand your thinking so. Of course, in your position of unofficial adviser and helper to everybody who is absolutely puzzled, throughout three continents, you are brought in contact with all that is strange and bizarre. But here, I picked up the morning paper from the ground. Let us put it to a practical test. Here is the first heading upon which I come. A husband's cruelty to his wife. There is half a column of print, but I know without reading it that it is all perfectly familiar to me. There is, of course, the other woman, the drink, the push, the blow, the bruise, the sympathetic sister or landlady. The crudest of writers could invent nothing more crude. Indeed, your example is an unfortunate one for your argument, said Holmes, taking the paper and glancing his eye down it. This is the Dundas separation case, and as it happens, I was engaged in clearing up some small points in connection with it. The husband was a teetotaler, there was no other woman, and the conduct complained of was that he had drifted into the habit of winding up every meal by taking out his false teeth and hurling them at his wife, which, you will allow, is not an action likely to occur to the imagination of the average storyteller. Take a pinch of snuff, doctor, and acknowledge that I have scored over you in your example. He held out his snuff-box of old gold, with a great amethyst in the centre of the lid. Its splendour was in such contrast to his homely ways and simple life that I could not help commenting upon it. Ah, I forgot I had not seen you in some weeks. 
It is a little souvenir from the King of Bohemia in return for my assistance in the case of the Irene Adler papers. And the ring? I asked, glancing at a remarkable brilliant which sparkled upon his finger. It was from the reigning family of Holland, though the matter in which I served them was of such delicacy I cannot confide it even to you, who have been good enough to chronicle one or two of my little problems. And have you any on hand just now? I asked with interest. Some ten or twelve, but none which present any feature of interest. They are important, you understand, without being interesting. Indeed, I have found that it is usually in unimportant matters that there is a field for the observer, and for the quick analysis of cause and effect which gives charm to an investigation. The larger crimes are apt to be simpler, for the bigger the crime, the more obvious, as a rule, is the motive. In these cases, save for one rather intricate matter which has been referred to me from Marseille, there is nothing which presents any features of interest. It is possible, however, that I may have something better before many minutes are over, for this is one of my clients, or I am much mistaken. He had risen from his chair and was standing between the parted blinds, gazing down into the dull, neutral-tinted London street. Looking over his shoulder, I saw that on the pavement opposite there stood a large woman with a heavy fur boa round her neck and a large, curling red feather in a broad-brimmed hat, which was tilted in a coquettish Duchess of Devonshire fashion over her ear. From under this great panoply she peeped up in a nervous, hesitating fashion at our windows, while her body oscillated backward and forward, and her fingers fidgeted with her glove-buttons. Suddenly, with a plunge, as of the swimmer who leaves the bank, she hurried across the road, and we heard the sharp clang of the bell. I have seen those symptoms before, said Holmes, throwing his cigarette into the fire. Oscillation upon the pavement always means an affair de coeur. She would like advice, but is not sure that the matter is not too delicate for communication. And yet, even here we may discriminate. When a woman has been seriously wronged by a man, she no longer oscillates, and the usual symptom is a broken bell wire. Here we may take it that there is a love matter, but that the maiden is not so much angry as perplexed or grieved. But here she comes in person to resolve all our doubts. As he spoke, there was a tap at the door, and the boy in buttons entered to announce Miss Mary Sutherland, while the lady herself loomed behind his small black figure like a full-sailed merchantman behind a tiny pilot boat. Sherlock Holmes welcomed her with the easy courtesy for which he was remarkable, and, having closed the door and bowed her into an armchair, he looked her over in the minute and yet abstracted fashion which was peculiar to him. Do you not find that with your short sight it is a little trying to do so much typewriting? I did at first, but now I know where the letters are without looking. Then, suddenly realizing the full purport of his words, she gave a violent start and looked up with fear and astonishment upon her broad, good-humoured face. You've heard of me, Mr. Holmes. How else could you know all that? <laughs> Never mind, it is my business to know things. Perhaps I have trained myself to see what others overlook. If not, why should you come to consult me? I came to see you, sir, because I heard of you from Mrs. Etheridge, whose husband you found so easy when the police and everyone had given him up for dead. Oh, oh Mr. Holmes, I wish you would do as much for me. I, I am not rich, but still I have a hundred a year in my own right, besides the little I make by the machine, 
and I would give it all to you to know what has become of Mr. Hosmer Angel. Why did you come away to consult me in such a hurry? Asked Sherlock Holmes, with his fingertips together and his eyes to the ceiling. Again, a startled look came over the somewhat vacuous face of Miss Mary Sutherland. Yes, I did bang out of the house, for it made me angry to see the easy way in which Mr. Winderbank, that is, my father, took it all. He would not go to the police, and he would not go to you. And so at last, as he would do nothing and kept on saying that there was no harm done, it, it made me mad. And, and I just go, got on my things and came right away to you. Your father? Your stepfather, surely, since the name is different. Yes, my stepfather. Well, I call him father, though it sounds funny, too, for he is only five years and, and two months older than myself. And your mother is alive? Oh, yes, mother is alive and well. I wasn't best pleased, Mr. Holmes, when she married again so soon after father's death, and a man who was nearly fifteen years younger than herself. Father was a plumber in the Tottenham Court Road, and he left a tidy business behind him, which mother carried on with Mr. Hardy, the foreman. But when Mr. Winterbank came, he made her sell the business, for he was very superior, being a traveller in wines. They got £4,700 for the goodwill and interest, which wasn't near as much as father could have got if he was alive and well. I had expected to see Sherlock Holmes impatient under this rambling and inconsequential narrative, but, on the contrary, he had listened with the greatest concentration of attention. Your own little income, does it come out of the business? Oh, no, sir. It is quite separate and was left to me by my Uncle Ned in Auckland. It is in New Zealand stock, paying four and a half percent. Two thousand five hundred pounds was the amount, but I can only touch the interest. You interest me extremely, and since you draw so large a sum as a hundred a year, with what you earn into the bargain, you no doubt travel a little and indulge yourself in every way. I believe that a single lady can get on very nicely on an income of about sixty pounds. I could do with much less, Mr. Holmes, but you understand that as long as I live at home, I don't wish to be a burden on them, and so they have the use of the money just as I am staying with them. Of course, that is only just for a time. Mr. Winderbank draws my interest every quarter and, and pays it over to Mother. And I find that I can do pretty well with what I earn in typewriting. It brings me two pence a sheet, and I can often do about 15 to 20 sheets in a day. You have made your position very clear to me. Uh, this is my friend, Dr. Watson, before whom you can speak as freely as before myself. Kindly tell us now all about your connection with Mr. Hosmer Angel. A flush stole over Miss Sutherland's face, and she picked nervously at the fringe of her jacket. I met him first at the Gasfitters' Ball. They used to send Father tickets when he was alive, and then afterwards they remembered us and, and sent them to Mother. Mr. Winterbank did not wish us to go. He never did wish us to go anywhere. He would get quite mad if I wanted to so much to join a Sunday school retreat. But this time I was set on going, and I would go. But what right did he have to prevent? He said the folks were not fit for us to know, but all Father's friends were to be there. And he said that I had nothing fit to wear when I had my purple plush and I had never so much as taken it out of the drawer. At last, when nothing else was to be done, he went off to France upon business of the firm, but we went, Mother and I, and Mr. Hardy, who used to be our foreman, and it was there that I met Hosmer Angel. I suppose that when Mr. Winderbank came back from France, he was very annoyed at your having gone to the ball? 
Oh, well, he was very good about it. He laughed, I remember, and, and shrugged his shoulders, and said there was no use denying anything to a woman, or she would have her way. I see. Then at the gas fitter's ball, you met, as I understand, a gentleman called Mr. Hosmer Angel. Yes, sir. I met him that night, and he called the next day to ask if we had got home safe. And after that, we met him. That is to say, Mr. Holmes, I met him twice for walks. But after that, father came back again, and Mr. Hosmer Angel could not come to the house anymore. No? Well, you know, father didn't like anything of the sort. He wouldn't have any visitors if he could help it. And he used to say that a woman should be happy in her own family circle. But then, as I used to say to mother, a woman wants her own circle to begin with, and I had not got mine yet. But how about Mr. Hosmer Angel? Did he make no attempt to see you? Well, father was going off to France again in a week, and Hosmer wrote and said that it would be safer and better not to see each other until he had gone. We could write in the meantime, and he used to write every day. I took the letters in the mornings, so there was no need for father to know. Were you engaged to the gentleman at this time? Oh, yes, Mr. Holmes. We were engaged after the first walk that we took. Hosmer, Mr. Angel, was a cashier in the office in Leadenhall Street, and- What office? The worst of it, Mr. Holmes, I don't know. Where did he live then? He slept on the premises. And you don't know his address? No, except that it was on Leadenhall Street. Where did you address your letters then? To the Leadenhall Street post office, to be left till called for. He said that if they were sent to the office, he would be chaffed by all the other clerks about receiving letters from a lady, so I offered to typewrite them, like he did his. But he wouldn't have that, for he said that when I wrote them, they seemed to come from me. But when they were typewritten, he felt that the machine had come between us. That will show you how fond he was of me, Mr. Holmes, and the little things that he would think of. It was most suggestive. It has long been an axiom of mine that the little things are infinitely the most important. Can you remember any other little things about Mr. Hosmer Angel? He's a very shy man, Mr. Holmes. He would rather walk with me in the evening than in the daylight, for he said that he hated to be conspicuous. Very retiring and gentlemanly he was. Even his voice was gentle. He had the quincy and swollen glands when he was young, he told me, and it had left him with a weak throat and a hesitating, whispering fashion of speech. He was always well-dressed, very neat and plain, but his eyes were weak, just as mine, and he wore tinted glasses against the glare. Well, and what happened when Mr. Winderbank, your stepfather, returned to France? When Mr. Hosmer Angel came to the house again and proposed that we should marry, poor father came back. He was in a dreadful earnest and made me swear, with my hands on the testament, that whatever happened, I would always be true to him. Mother said he was quite right to make me swear, and that it was a sign of his passion. Mother was all in his favor from the first, and was even fonder of him than I was. Then, when they talked of marrying within a week, I began to ask about father. But they both said never to mind about father, to just tell him afterwards. And Mother said she would make it all right with him. I didn't quite like that, Mr. Holmes. It seemed funny that I should ask his leave, as he was only a few years older than me, but I didn't want to do anything on the sly. So I wrote to Father at Bordeaux, where the company has its French offices, but the letter came back to me 
the morning of the wedding. It missed him then? Yes, sir. Well, he had started for England just before it arrived. Huh. That was unfortunate. Your wedding was arranged then for the Friday. Was it to be in church? Yes, sir, but very quietly. It was to be at St. Saviour's, near King's Cross, and we would have a breakfast afterwards at the St. Pancras Hotel. Cosma came for us in his hansom, but as there were two of us, he put us both in and, and stepped himself into a four-wheeler, which happened to be the only other cab in the street. We got to the church first, and when the four-wheeler drove up, we waited for him to step out, which he never did. And when the cabman got down from the box and he looked, there was no one there. The cabman said that he, he could not imagine what could have become of him, for he had seen him get in with his own eyes. That was last Friday, Mr. Holmes, and I have never seen or heard anything since to throw any light upon what had become of him. It seems to me that you have been very shamefully treated. Oh, no, sir. Oh, he was too good and kind to leave me so. Why, all the morning he was saying to me, what, whatever happened, I was to be true, and that even if something quite unforeseen occurred to separate us, I was always to remember that I was pledged to him, and that he would claim his pledge sooner or later. It seems strange, Ock, for a wedding morning, but what has happened since gives a meaning to it. It most certainly does. Your own opinion is, then, that some unforeseen catastrophe has occurred to him? Yes, sir. I believe that he foresaw some danger, or else he would not have talked so. And then I think that what he foresaw happened. But you have no notion as to what it could have been? None. One more question. How did your mother take the matter? Oh, she was angry and said that I was never to speak of the matter again. And your father, did you tell him? Yes. He seemed to think, with me, that something had happened and that I should hear from Hosmer again. As he said, what interest could anyone have in bringing me to the doors of a church and then leaving me? Now, if he had borrowed my money, or if he had married me and got my money settled on him, then there might be a reason. But Hosmer was very independent about money, never would look at a shilling of mine. And yet, what could have happened? And why could he not write? Oh, it drives me half mad to think of it, and I cannot sleep a wink at night. She pulled a little handkerchief out of her muff and began to sob heavily into it. I shall glance into the case for you, said Holmes, rising, and I have no doubt that we shall reach some definite result. Let the weight of the matter rest upon me now, and do not let your mind dwell upon it further. Above all, try to let Mr. Hosmer Angel vanish from your memory, as he has done from your life. Then you don't think I'll see him again? I fear not. Then what has happened to him? You will leave that question in my hands. I should like an accurate description of him and any letters of his which you can spare. I advertised for him in last Sunday's Chronicle. Here's the slip, and here are four letters from him. Thank you. And your address? Number 31, Lion Place, Camberwell. Mr. Angel's address you never had, I understand. Where is your father's place of business? He travels for West House and Marbank the great claret importers of Fenchurch Street. Thank you. You have made your statement very clearly. You will leave the papers here and remember the advice which I have given you. Let the whole incident be a sealed book and do not allow it to affect your life.
You are very kind, Mr. Holmes, but I cannot do that. I shall be true to Hosmer. He shall find me ready when he comes back. For all the preposterous hat and the vacuous face, there was something noble in the simple faith of our visitor which compelled our respect. She laid her little bundle of papers upon the table and went her way, with a promise to come again whenever she might be summoned. Sherlock Holmes sat silent for a few minutes, with his fingertips still pressed together, his legs outstretched in front of him, and his gaze directed upward to the ceiling. Then he took down from the rack the old and oily clay pipe, which was to him as a counsellor, and, having lit it, he leaned back in his chair, with the thick blue cloud wreaths spinning up from him, and a look of infinite languor on his face. Quite an interesting study, that maiden. I found her more interesting than her little problem, which, by the way, is a rather trite one. You will find parallel cases, if you consult my index, in Andover in 77, and there was something of the sort at The Hague last year. Old as is the idea, however, there were one or two details which were new to me, but the maiden herself was most instructive. You appeared to read a good deal upon her which was quite invisible to me. Not invisible, but unnoticed, Watson. You did not know where to look, and so you missed all that was important. I can never bring you to realize the importance of sleeves, the suggestiveness of thumbnails, or the great issues which may hang from a bootlace. Now, what did you gather from that woman's appearance? Describe it. Well, she had a slate-colored, broad-brimmed straw hat with a feather of a brickish red. Her jacket was black, with black beads sewn upon it, and a fringe of little black jet ornaments. Her dress was brown, rather darker than coffee-colored, with a little purple plush at the neck and sleeves. Her gloves were grayish and were worn through at the right forefinger. Her boots I didn't observe. She had small, round, hanging gold earrings and a general air of being fairly well-to-do in a vulgar, comfortable, easy-going way. Sherlock Holmes clapped his hands softly together and chuckled. <laughs> Upon my word, Watson, you are coming along wonderfully. You have really done very well indeed. It is true that you have missed everything of importance, but you have hit upon the method and have a quick eye for colour. Never trust to general impressions, my boy, but concentrate yourself upon details. My first glance is always at a woman's sleeve. In a man it is perhaps better to first take in the knee of the trouser. As you observe, this woman had plush upon her sleeves, which is a most useful material for showing traces. The double line a little above the wrist, where the typewriter presses against the table, was beautifully defined. The sewing machine of the hand type leaves a similar mark, but only on the left arm, and on the side of it furthest from the thumb, instead of being right across the broadest part, as this was. Then I glanced at her face, and observing the dint of a pinsnez on either side of her nose, I ventured a remark upon short sight and typewriting which seemed to surprise her. It surprised me. But surely it was obvious. I was then much surprised and interested on glancing down to observe that, though the boots which she was wearing were not unlike one another, they were really odd ones, the one having a slightly decorated toe cap and the other a plain one. One was buttoned only in the 
two lower buttons out of five, and the other at the first, third, and fifth. Now, when you see that a young lady otherwise neatly dressed has come away from home with odd boots half-buttoned, it is no great deduction to say that she came away in a hurry. And what else? I asked, keenly interested, as I always was, by my friend's incisive reasoning. I noted in passing that she had written a note before leaving home, but after being fully dressed. You observed that her right glove was torn at the forefinger, but you did not apparently see that both glove and finger was stained with violet ink. She had written in a hurry and dipped her pen too deep. It must have been this morning, or the mark would not remain clear upon her finger. All this is amusing, though rather elementary, but I must get back to business, Watson. Would you mind reading me the advertised description of Mr. Hosmer Angel? I held the little printed slip to the light. Missing, it said. On the morning of the 14th, a gentleman named Hosmer Angel, about five feet seven inches in height, strongly built, sallow complexion, black hair, a little bald in the center, bushy black side whiskers and moustache, tinted glasses, slight infirmity of speech, was dressed when last seen in black frock coat faced with silk, black waistcoat, gold Albert chain, and gray Harris tweed trousers with brown gaiters over elastic-sided boots. Known to have been employed in an office in Leadenhall Street. Uh, anybody bringing, etc., uh, etc. Et That'll do. As to the letters, he continued, glancing over them, they are very commonplace. Absolutely no clue in them to Mr. Angel, save that he quotes Balzac once. There is one remarkable point, however, which will no doubt strike you. They are typewritten. Not only that, but the signature is typewritten. Look at the neat little Hosmer Angel at the bottom. There is a date, you see, but no superscription except Leadenhall Street, which is rather vague. The point about the signature is very suggestive. In fact, we may call it conclusive. Of what? My dear fellow, is it possible that you do not see how strongly it bears upon the case? I cannot say that I do, unless it were that he wished to be able to deny his signature if an action for breach of promise were instituted. No, that was not the point. However, I shall write two letters which should settle the matter. One is to a firm in the city, the other is to the young lady's stepfather, Mr. Windebank, asking him whether he could meet us here at six o'clock tomorrow evening. It is just as well that we should do business with the male relatives. And now, Doctor, we can do nothing until the answers to those letters come, so we may put our little problem upon the shelf for the interim. I had had so many reasons to believe in my friend's subtle powers of reasoning and extraordinary energy in action that I felt that he must have some solid grounds for the assured and easy demeanor with which he treated the singular mystery which he had been called upon to fathom. Once only had I known him to fail, in the case of the King of Bohemia and of the Irene Adler photograph, but when I looked back to the weird business of the sign of four and the extraordinary circumstances connected with the study in Scarlet, I felt that it would be a strange tangle indeed which he could not unravel. I left him then, still puffing at his black clay pipe, 
with the conviction that when I came again on the next evening, I would find that he held in his hands all the clues which would lead up to the identity of the disappearing bridegroom of Miss Mary Sutherland. A professional case of great gravity was engaging my own attention at the time, and the whole of next day I was busy at the bedside of the sufferer. It was not until close upon six o'clock that I found myself free and was able to spring into a hansom and drive to Baker Street, half afraid that I might be too late to assist in the denouement of the little mystery. I found Sherlock Holmes alone, however, half asleep, with his long, thin form curled up in the recesses of his armchair. A formidable array of bottles and test tubes with the pungent, cleanly smell of hydrochloric acid told me that he had spent his day in the chemical work which was so dear to him. Well, have you solved it? I asked as I entered. Yes, it was the bisulfate of Barita. No, no, the mystery! Oh, that! I thought of the salt that I had been working upon. There was never any mystery in the matter, though, as I said yesterday, some of the details are of interest. The only drawback is that there is no law, I fear, that can touch the scoundrel. Who was he, then? And what was his object in deserting Miss Sutherland? The question was hardly out of my mouth, and Holmes had not yet opened his lips to reply when we heard a heavy footfall in the passage and a tap at the door. This is the girl's stepfather, Mr. James Winderbank. He has written to me to say that he would be here at six. Come in. The man who entered was a sturdy, middle-sized fellow, some thirty years of age, clean-shaven and sallow-skinned, with a bland, insinuating manner and a pair of wonderfully sharp and penetrating grey eyes. He shot a questioning glance at each of us, placed his shiny top hat upon the sideboard, and with a slight bow, sidled down into the nearest chair. Good evening, Mr. James Winderbank. I think that this typewritten letter is from you, in which you made an appointment with me for six o'clock. Yes, sir. I'm afraid that I'm a little late, but I am not quite my own master, you know. I am sorry that Miss Sutherland has troubled you about this little matter, for... I think it is far better not to wash linen of the sort in public. It was quite against my wishes that she came here, but she is a very excitable, impulsive girl, as you may have noticed, and she is not easily controlled when she has made up her mind on a point. Of course, I did not mind you so much, as you are not connected with the official police, but it is not pleasant to have a family misfortune like this noised abroad. Besides, it is a useless expense, for how could you possibly find this Hosma Angel? On the contrary, I have every reason to believe that I will succeed in discovering Mr. Hosma Angel. Mr. Windybank gave a violent start and dropped his gloves. I am delighted to hear it. It is a curious thing that a typewriter has really quite as much individuality as a man's handwriting. Unless they are quite new, no two of them write exactly alike. Some letters get more worn than others, and some wear only on one side. Now, you remark in this note of yours, Mr. Windebank, that in every case there is some little slurring over the E, and a slight defect in the tail of the R. There are fourteen other characteristics, but those are the more obvious. We do all our correspondence with this machine at the office, and no doubt it is a little worn. Our visitor answered, glancing keenly at Holmes with his bright little eyes. And now I will show you what is really a very interesting study, Mr. Winderbank. 
I think of writing another little monograph some of these days on the typewriter and its relation to crime. It is a subject to which I have devoted some little attention. I have here four letters which purport to come from the missing man. They are all typewritten. In each case, not only are the E's slurred and the R's tailless, but you will observe, if you care to use my magnifying lens, that the fourteen other characteristics to which I have alluded are there as well. Mr. Windebank sprang out of his chair and picked up his hat. I cannot waste time over this sort of fantastic talk, Mr. Holmes. If you can catch the man, catch him, and let me know when you have done it. Certainly, said Holmes, stepping over and turning the key in the door. I let you know, then, that I have caught him. What? Where? shouted Mr. Windebank, turning white to his lips and glancing about him like a rat in a trap. Oh, it won't do. Really, it won't. There is no possible getting out of it, Mr. Windebank. It is quite too transparent, and it was a very bad compliment when you said that it was impossible for me to solve so simple a question. That's right. Sit down and let us talk it over. Our visitor collapsed into a chair with a ghastly face and a glitter of moisture on his brow. It's not actionable. I am very much afraid that it is not. But between ourselves, Mr. Windebank, it was as cruel and selfish and heartless a trick in a petty way as ever came before me. Now, let me just run over the course of events, and you will contradict me if I go wrong. The man sat huddled up in his chair, with his head sunk upon his breast like one who was utterly crushed. Holmes stuck his feet up on the corner of the mantelpiece and, leaning back with his hands in his pockets, began talking rather to himself, as it seemed, than to us. A man married a woman very much older than himself for her money, and he enjoyed the use of the money of the daughter as long as she lived with them. It was a considerable sum for people in their position, and the loss of it would have made a serious difference. It was worth an effort to preserve it. The daughter was of a good, amiable disposition, but affectionate and warm-hearted in her ways, so that it was evident that with her fair personal advantages and her little income, she would not be allowed to remain single long. Now her marriage would mean, of course, the loss of a hundred a year. So what does her stepfather do to prevent it? He takes the obvious course of keeping her at home and forbidding her to seek the company of people her own age. But soon he found that that would not answer forever. She became restive, insisted upon her rights, and finally announced her clear intention of going to a certain ball. What does her clever stepfather do then? He conceives an idea more credible to his head than to his heart. With the connivance and assistance of his wife, he disguised himself, covered those keen eyes with tinted glasses, masked the face with a moustache and a pair of bushy whiskers, sunk that clear voice into an insinuating whisper, and doubly secure on account of the girl's short sight, he appears as Mr. Hosmer Angel and keeps off other lovers by making love himself. It was only a joke at first. We'd never thought that she would have been so carried away. 
Very likely not. However that may be, the young lady was very decidedly carried away, and having quite made up her mind that her stepfather was in France, the suspicion of treachery never for an instant entered her mind. She was flattered by the gentleman's attentions, and the effect was increased by the loudly expressed admiration of her mother. Then Mr. Angel began to call, for it was obvious that the matter should be pushed as far as it would go if a real effect would be produced. There were meetings, and an engagement which would finally secure the girl's affections from turning towards anyone else. But the deception could not be kept up forever. These pretended journeys to France were rather cumbrous. The thing to do was clearly to bring the business to an end in such a dramatic manner that it would leave a permanent impression upon the young lady's mind and prevent her from looking upon any other suitor for some time to come. Hence those vows of fidelity exacted upon a testament, and hence also the allusions to the possibility of something happening on the very morning of the wedding. James Windebank wished Miss Sutherland to be so bound to Hosmer Angel and so uncertain as to his fate that for ten years to come, at any rate, she would not listen to another man. As far as the church door he brought her, and then, as he could go no farther, he conveniently vanished away by the old trick of stepping in at one door of a four-wheeler and out at the other. I think that was the chain of events, Mr. Windebank. Our visitor had recovered something of his assurance while Holmes had been talking, and he rose from his chair now with a cold sneer upon his pale face. It may be so, or it may not, Mr. Holmes, but if you are so very sharp, you ought to be sharp enough to know that it is you who are breaking the law now, and not me. I have done nothing actionable from the first, but... As long as you keep that door locked, you lay yourself open to an action for assault and illegal constraint. The law cannot, as you say, touch you, said Holmes, unlocking and throwing open the door. Yet there never was a man who deserved punishment more. If the young lady has a brother or a friend, he ought to lay a whip across your shoulders. By Jove! He continued, flushing up at the sight of the bitter sneer upon the man's face. It is not part of my duties to my client, but here's a hunting crop handy, and I think I shall just treat myself to... He took two swift steps to the whip, but before he could grasp it, there was a wild clatter of steps upon the stairs. The heavy hall door banged, and from the window we could see Mr. James Windebank running at the top of his speed down the road. <laughs> That's a cold-blooded scoundrel, said Holmes, laughing as he threw himself down into his chair once more. That fellow will rise from crime to crime until he does something very bad and ends on a gallows. The case has, in some respects, been not entirely devoid of interest. I cannot now entirely see all the steps of your reasoning. Well, of course, it was obvious from the first that this Mr. Hosmer Angel must have some strong object for his curious conduct, and it was equally clear that the only man who really profited by the incident, as far as we could see, was the stepfather. Then the fact that the two men were never together, that the one always appeared when the other was away, was suggestive. So were the tinted spectacles and the curious voice, which both hinted at a disguise, as did the bushy whiskers. 
My suspicions were all confirmed by his peculiar action in typewriting his signature, which, of course, inferred that his handwriting was so familiar to her that she would recognize even the smallest sample of it. You see, all these isolated facts, together with many minor ones, all pointed in the same direction. And how did you verify them? Having once spotted my man, it was easy to get corroboration. I knew the firm for which this man worked. Having taken the printed description, I eliminated everything from it which could be the result of a disguise. The whiskers, the glasses, the voice, and I sent it to the firm with the request that they would inform me whether it answered to the description of any of their travellers. I had already noticed the peculiarities of the typewriter, and I wrote to the man himself at his business address, asking him if he could come here. As I expected, his reply was typewritten, and revealed the same trivial but characteristic defects. The same post brought me a letter from West House in Marbank of Fenchurch Street, to say that the description tallied in every respect with that of their employee, James Winderbank. Voila tout! And Miss Sutherland? If I tell her, she will not believe me. You may remember the old Persian saying, There is danger for him who taketh the tiger cub, and danger also for whoso snatches a delusion from a woman. There is as much sense in Haviz as in Horace, and as much knowledge of the world. A Case of Identity by Arthur Conan Doyle With James Gelter as Sherlock Holmes Tony Grobe as Dr. Watson Featuring Kirby Landers as Mary Sutherland and Sam Murphy as James Windebank. Baker Street theme performed by Jonathan Kinnersley. Sound engineering by Jessica Gelter and Pete Wilson. Produced by James Gelter and Tony Grobe. Directed by James Gelter. Recorded at the Latches Theatre in Brattleboro, Vermont. And welcome to After the Read Case of Identity Edition. As always, I am your co-host, Jay Gelter. And I am your co-host, Tony Grobe. That is true. No one is disputing it. (laughs) (laughs) And we are all so lucky that he is, in fact, Tony Grobe. Well, I appreciate that. All right. All right. Well, so it's case of, it's case of identity edition, but first as always some business. Thank you to all of our dear patrons. <laughs> you are wonderful patrons and we love you all. We do especially love our detective tier patrons who at this moment are Anna Barons, Don Grobe, Don Harlow, Holly Kennedy, Ian Heffley, Mary Allen, Denise Glover, Kelsey, and Maureen Ward. If you Yay. want a shout out during an episode, and receive a beautiful Baker Street Readers podcast mug, please upgrade to Detective Tier Patrons. 
Amen. I especially appreciate how, uh, even though this is an audio format podcast, uh, you are making a lovely hand gesture as though presenting a mug to the camera. Well, as as we have learned in recording these stories, it does help to just act it out, even if Absolutely. the audience can't see it. It just it informs the way you speak. <laughs> um, but of Rudolph. course, this episode also has a sponsor, Tony. This episode is brought to you by Duchess of Devonshire Hats. Love giant, wide-brimmed hats five times larger than any hat reasonably should be? Buy a Duchess of Devonshire hat. If you love extramarital affairs and gambling as much as Georgiana Cavendish, Duchess of Devonshire, express it like she did, with a monstrosity of black fabric, ribbon and flowers tipped so awkwardly on the side of your head that you'll be unable to balance and cause massive damage to your neck. Available wherever the worst hats in the world are sold. Had <laughs> uh, one other bit of business. We are now proud to announce Tony, drumroll, please. I can't hear that. Oh, uh, you can't hear that? That's disappointing. Yeah. Okay. You did, did just. You, uh, I, I was expecting you to just go. <laughs> 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 All right. Great drumroll. Uh, we have now uh, our first three episodes are now available for free on the Stitcher podcasting app and Podcast Addict. Huzzah! You prefer listening to your podcasts through those? Please look up our podcast and now you can rate it and you can review it. How exciting. Although I believe there's a bug on Stitcher that they'll only accept five star reviews. Really? So I think you'll have to select five stars if you decide to go and uh, review it on Stitcher. And please do. Even if you don't use Stitcher, go out of your way and do it anyway. <laughs> It'll help us out. Yes. And our free episodes will also soon be available on iTunes and Spotify. Well, Apple Podcast, as it's now called, and mm. Spotify. So um, exciting. We will keep you posted for that but let us move on uh we have some questions i posted on our facebook page today if anybody had any questions they'd like us to answer in this episode uh if you want to ask us questions you can post them on our facebook page or send us an email at bakerstreetreaders at gmail.com so here are some of the questions we got this week <laughs> First, we got a few from Krista. Mm -hmm. First question from Krista. How accurate do you think the widely accepted modern interpretation of Holmes as a sort of Batman-esque vigilante is to the source material? It's a weighty question. Well, it's a funny one of timing because I just finished reading Batman by Gaslight, mm. which is... a a reimagining of Batman Year One, but in the Victorian era. Oh, cool. And when he's away from Gotham City training to become Batman, Bruce Wayne trains with Sherlock Holmes. No. Ah. <laughs> well, that's appropriate. He's called the detective by some of his uh, opponents. He learns the art of detection from Sherlock from uh, Sherlock Holmes and the art of analysis from Freud before mm. going to uh, Gotham and dressing up as a bat and beating people up. <laughs> Pretty no good. underlying issues there at all. Yeah, obviously. yeah, yeah. It's a pretty good graphic novel. Um, mm. but you know, 
I would really say it's not that far fetched. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Batman owes, well, every detective story since owes a lot to Sherlock Holmes. True. And Batman in the comics, not so much in the movies, um, but Batman in the comics does regularly take on the role of the detective. Mm -hmm. And as for the vigilanteism, I'd say it holds up in a number of ways, uh, particularly that Holmes makes it quite clear that he does what's what he finds to be right, regardless mm -hmm. of where the law stands. Exactly. He goes, to, he goes out of his way to explain in some of his cases that he is not beholden to the official police. So right. if he feels like he doesn't have to tell them things, then he's not going to do it. Right. If, if he has sympathy for the person who committed a murder, if he's like, oh, <laughs> that murder was totally justified, he zips his lip and doesn't tell anybody. You know, mm -hmm. um, and he expresses on many occasions he's just as willing to help people of any class if their case is interesting and they truly would need his help to solve it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would say, I mean, he does not, unlike Batman, he does not go out looking for cases. Right. He's not, he's not out patrolling the city looking for crimes to thwart. Right. And he certainly doesn't beat people up. Right. I mean, he defends himself he will defend when he himself. gets into situations that are dangerous, as we see in some of the later mysteries. Right. But, but, you, uh, but you never see Sherlock Holmes, like, chasing down a, chasing down a, a low-ranking mobster in an alley and being like, where are they? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no one's getting hung upside down from anything yeah. uh, to find out crucial information that they know and won't divulge. Tell me. Which train from Waterloo did they take? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am Sherlock. Yeah. No. Moriarty cannot win. Yeah, that, that aspect of it is, is definitely, um, in, in a way, I think some of those things that creep into modern adaptations just have to do with the fact that picturing someone or showing someone who's hanging out in their rooms, deducing things and sending telegrams, doesn't make for a very exciting movie. Right. Um, and so, you know, some spectacle has to get injected there somehow. Right. And there's, there's this real backwards and forward thing. Like any, like any character who inspires a, a genre or, you know, inspires other characters to follow after them, it becomes kind of this conversation between the original and the imitations, right? So without Sherlock Holmes, arguably there isn't a Batman, right? Right. So Sherlock Holmes creates this literary space that many, many, many years later allows Batman to become a thing. Mm -hmm. But then what Batman becomes then informs popular opinion as to what Sherlock Holmes becomes. And, and mm -hmm. you know, there becomes mm -hmm. this popular culture dialogue um, right. between, between not just those two. I mean, you can, you know, I've at times with people discussed, I mean, you can see some clear lines between Holmes and James Bond, between Holmes mm -hmm. and Doctor Who. You know, it, uh, there's lots of, lots of things, but even though he was not a comic book, he was a character who solved mysteries using what seemed to be extraordinary abilities beyond most humans. Mm -hmm. And these stories were released in a serial basis. Right. Like, so that, if, if, it was fully illustrated, but boom, he is 
the first comic book superhero, right? Right, right. I mean, there's there's a degree of continuity that comes in with comic books that I think was not necessarily a part of the serialized works at the time of Holmes, because each story is more independent. But but yes, yeah. Eventually, with comic books, yeah. I mean, even early Batman was pretty case of the week ish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a good one. So, uh, Krista, we're I don't think we're going to get to all your questions this time, Krista, because <laughs> you 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 asked a few. But she did ask one that we've been asked in other forums before, and it's a good one. What are your favorite modern adaptations of mm. Sherlock Holmes? Tony, you want to start this one? I, I'm a fan of the Jeremy Brett uh, series, which was on, um, was it Masterpiece Theater? I believe it was. Masterpiece yes. Mystery. Yes. It, mainly because it definitely portrayed the eccentricity of Holmes in a much more obvious way than uh, than in some other film or TV adaptations of the source material. Right. Although that is quickly not becoming a modern adaptation. Well, you're, oh, well, yeah. you're, you're right. But no, you're it's right. still, it, I'd still count it because it still does loom large in mm-hmm. popular con- culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he definitely portrayed, he portrayed the, the oddity of Holmes's character, I think in, in a far more extreme way than, than many other actors who've tackled the role. Yeah. As well as kind of his, his, cold or standoffishness that Watson is goes to some pains to to describe in several yeah i have i have mixed feelings about brett he definitely took this these passages where conan doyle describes sherlock holmes as being able to switch between like languor and like high energy you know he talks about how holmes can do this on a dime but uh brett does it like every other word sometimes (laughs) he takes it like he'll be like oh really watson i don't know let us go (laughs) randomly just shout a line out and suddenly wah you know uh Mm -hmm. which i'm like i Mm -hmm. I think i think he meant i I was like i think conan doyle meant like from from day to day not right every or you know when when he's when he's embroiled in in a, a search for for clues he's transformed from something that may have happened earlier that day but but what that show did which further modern adaptations picked up on and piggybacked on was that was really the restoration of watson as a serious character and not just a a bumbling buffoon Mm, here here um oh and now i'm blanking on the the fellow who plays watson in that and that makes me feel bad Uh oh but certainly he's that Watson is much more involved. Sometimes he gets some of Holmes's lines just so he is more involved, but he's, <laughs> he's a, a Watson that you're supposed to be taken. That's supposed to be taken seriously, which the two most prevalent ex- modern adaptations, BBC show Sherlock and the Robert Downey Jr. Movies also allow Watson to be a serious character in some cases too serious of a character. <laughs> I would say, I mean, Indeed. I would say my favorite modern Holmes adaptation is Sherlock, the BBC show, but only for the first two seasons. I think mm. I have expressed on this podcast before my feelings of what happens after the first two seasons of that show. Yeah, it 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 definitely took a turn into some odd territory. Uh, yeah, the the writers of that show, Stephen Moffat and Mark Gaddis, I love their work, their other shows, they all follow the same pattern, which is 
uh, they do two amazing seasons and then they start writing fan fiction based on their own show. <laughs> um, uh, yes. And it just becomes, it just becomes too much. Uh, but mm -hmm. thank you, Krista, for those questions. We have one more question, Indeed. and that is from Christian. And he asks a big question, which we'll get into more down the line, but we can do a preliminary answers. From Christian, what's up with Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote about the world's most logical skeptic, believing in ghosts and fairies? Mm. A very fair question. Um, Indeed. Yeah, for people who did not know that <laughs> Conan Doyle, yes, the author of Sherlock Holmes, did believe in ghosts and fairies and psychics and mediums and all that stuff was for a time a good friend with harry houdini but they stopped being friends when he refused to accept the fact that houdini was not in fact magic mm. houdini was like no it's all a trick let me show you he's like i don't believe it all magic awkward yeah yeah so uh how do you reconcile that um you know, Stephen Fry in his Sherlock Holmes audio collection talks a lot about this in his preference to Hand of the Baskervilles. And I think it really kind of shows the strength of Conan Doyle as an author that he is willing to separate himself from his characters. And once he establishes something about a character and who that character is and how that character thinks, he really doesn't allow himself to change that mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. if you know you could see an alternate world where by the time he's writing hand of the baskervilles sherlock holmes is open to this stuff just like conan doyle is but he says no but you know conan doyle says no 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 that is not who this character is that's not what people want from this character so i will stay true to my own creation something that Stephen Moffat and Mark Gaddis do not do on the BBC show Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's definitely a line that one has to walk, I suppose. Yes. As a as a writer. Yeah. Um writing writing things that are true to the character rather than what you might want them to do. Right, which is, you know, why a lot of people are like, oh, you know, Watson is kind of a stand-in for Conan Doyle himself because they're both doctors who got into writing and it's like, yes, there are connections there, but uh, you know, you shouldn't go with the interpretation that what Watson says is what Conan Doyle believes or Indeed. what Holmes says is what Conan Doyle believes. You know, which is I think, you know, a sign of a good writer to be able to explore other ways of thinking and not just, this is how I think over and over and over again. Mm. So thank you, Christian, for that. So before we get into case identity, and I know everybody's going like, when are you going to talk about the darn story? <laughs> I'm sure they're gnashing their teeth as we speak. We do have a new segment. Mm. And it's called Casting Holmes and Watson. I will drop in a jingle here. Now, this was inspired, this segment was inspired by our, <laughs> this segment was inspired by a conversation we had when recording this story. We started discussing in the middle of the recording how we would cast a Sherlock Holmes story using the Muppets. <laughs> So I thought, let's do it. Let's say that we are 
producers at the Henson Company, and we have decided that our next movie is The Muppets, Sherlock Holmes. All right. Mm -hmm. Now, in that initial conversation, I put forward Kermit as Holmes and Fozzie as Watson. Now, Tony, do you remember with what you countered? I I believe I went with Gonzo as Holmes and uh, Rizzo as Watson. Did I not? Yes. And see, I think that would work, except, (laughs) except Gonzo is obviously Lestrade. When you put it like that, I can see it. Yes, I mean, yeah, it's Gonzo. Gonzo is kind of Gonzo is the Daffy Duck to Kermit's Bugs Bunny, right? <laughs> uh, yes, yes so, I suppose. Just as I would say, Lestrade is the Daffy Duck to Holmes's Bugs Bunny. <laughs> to Holmes's Bugs Bunny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're always at loggerheads. I, that's for I sure. I could definitely see Gonzo just being like, "What? None of this makes sense. What are you talking about?" Yeah. Just generally irritating Kermit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that would make Rizzo just unnamed constable who's always following Lestrade around. And, and commenting on things behind his back. Right. And if we have Kermit as Holmes, then that lets us make Miss Piggy Irene Adler. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the chicken. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> as opposed to the chicken. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, um, but then I was thinking you could have Dr. Honeydew mm-hmm. play Stamford, the character in Study in Scarlet who introduces Watson to Holmes. Okay. I'd buy it. Then I, I was trying to figure out who to play Mrs. Hudson. <laughs> and I thought, it's got to be Scooter, right? <laughs> he just put Scooter in a wig. <laughs> okay. And then, of course, as Moriarty, you cast a random super classy British actor. Mm. you know because mm-hmm. they always have that your Muppet movies always have like Michael Caine is thrown in there or Tim Curry mm-hmm. is thrown in there we need just some we need like Bill Nye as, as, Moriarty. as Moriarty just playing mm-hmm. it chewing the scenery just playing it straight serious like he's in a Sherlock Holmes <laughs> drama having an intense conversation with uh-huh. Kermit the Frog mm-hmm. and obviously he has an American stooge played by Sam the Eagle oh absolutely yeah my goodness yes so that is how we play cast Holmes and watson (laughs) if you have a cast of characters you want us to take and cast in a sherlock holmes movie uh email us bakerstreetreaders at gmail.com and we'll do it in a later episode or hit us up on facebook indeed indeed (laughs) All right, so you've waited for it. Let's talk a case of identity, mm. which was first published in the Strand magazine in September 1891 and included in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Mm. Tony, your initial thoughts on Case of Identity. I think this is a lovely example of what happens so often in The Adventures, which is the... Uh, the mystery that takes place entirely in the chambers. Exactly. Adventure is a stretch for this one. Indeed. All the action, you know, the client comes to them. In the end, the villain comes to them. Holmes sends a few letters and voila. Yeah. He knows everything. Indeed. And like a lot of them, it starts with the deduction game. 
<laughs> at the top but luckily this this deduction game is is actually just has to do with the client and it's actually kind of weird because he does a little deduction game about the client near the beginning being like oh i can mm -hmm. tell by her movements what type of client she's going to be mm -hmm. but then the real game between Holmes and watson where they're both throwing deductions back and forth actually happens in the middle of this story after she's left right. which is a little breaking formula which is actually nice mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a mm -hmm. good change the opening conversation <laughs> um i can clearly see the point conan doyle is trying to make about how bizarre the real life actually is and this idea mm -hmm. that we think of things as being common when that's that's not really a, a thing right but there is some classic conan doyle humble bragging thrown in here oh do tell <laughs> well the line about how a man throwing false teeth at his wife is quote is not an action likely to occur to the imagination of the average storyteller to write that so. in a story that you are telling is to basically mm -hmm. say and that ain't me because i came up yeah. with it <laughs> boom i am so much better than most people telling stories these days <laughs> <laughs> it's this weird both you know he's making this thing that like stories cannot capture what's truly bizarre in the world but at the same time he's writing this very bizarre story right mm -hmm. so he's mm -hmm. it, it, it there, there's this odd tension in that conversation yeah and i think it's one that comes up at least the this discussion reoccurs in at least one or two other mysteries over time there's another example of him humble bragging kind of in such a way in Boscombe Valley Mystery, which is our next story. Stay tuned, mm -hmm. listeners, for mm -hmm. next week when we do that one. Uh, there's also early on in this story, there's this conversation around the snuff box. Mm -hmm. This conversation around the snuff box kind of directly contradicts some of the things he says in Scandal in Bohemia. Yes. One, that he doesn't want any gifts from the king other than Irene's mm -hmm. picture. Mm -hmm. But yet he gets this snuff box and seems very happy about it. Indeed. The other is Watson clearly states at the beginning and end of that story that from then on, Sherlock Holmes only ever refers to Irene Adler as the woman. But what does he call her in this? Hmm. Oh, good question. He calls her Irene Adler. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it would be, you know, he doesn't say, you know, from the case of the woman, the woman, the case of the Irene Adler papers, I suppose. But you know, I guess you know, this happens a lot in the adventures. You don't get it as much later on in the series, where he's regularly referencing stories that have just recently been published, mm -hmm. in sort of this trying to sell himself sort of way. Like if I bring up by their by their titles in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm these previous stories that'll make people go like oh yeah that one i haven't read that one i'll go back and read it or you know it just bring brings it back up there my yeah. he talks about studying scarlet throughout the adventures like mm -hmm. you know every other story he mentions oh yes do you remember doing a study in scarlet yes yeah. buy my book <laughs> it will explain <laughs> everything <Yes. laughs> uh, so so that's that's the opening of the story but let's talk about the story itself and how problematic it is hmm. <laughs> um, uh, where to begin obviously sexism is displayed by holmes 
in numerous ways mm. <laughs> in this one, both I would say in Watson's descriptions of the woman. Yep. Most female clients in the series are beautiful, intelligent young women who mm-hmm. Holmes is impressed by in some way um, for their courage or whatever. And they play this very classic ingenue part. This one is interesting in that it doesn't do that, but it doesn't do that in every way. Yeah. <laughs> this character is not intelligent, is not particularly courageous in any way, but also physically is, well, not not a beautiful, slender uh, woman with perfect lips, as as Watson likes to describe the ladies. Indeed. You know, she's really, she's really presented as a buffoon. Mm-hmm. Although he allows sympathy for her i think a good example is watson's discussion about how regardless of how ridiculous she looks and how oblivious she seems to be to things within her story i forget how he describes it but you know this there's earnest desire to solve this problem that that holmes and watson feel compelled to respect yeah it's an odd juxtaposition in a way and she's definitely not described in a favorable light Yet Holmes finds her fascinating. Yes, exactly. And, and Watson is surprised by this. You know, yeah. I, think, I think early on, uh, you know, Watson says, I, I would have expected Holmes to be bored by this kind of lengthy presentation. And yet he was absorbed, you know. So. Right. And I think it's in part because a person living in denial is a terrible thing, but is kind of a fascinating thing to watch, mm. right? Like how many movies and TV shows and pieces of literature, uh, you know, are kind of based around the tragedy of this person who's just living in complete denial. Mm -hmm. And where, you know, there is something fascinating about that. Um, And perhaps that's what Holmes is connecting connecting to is, you know, Mm -hmm. it is interesting to see someone who has built this view of the world around them that they cannot see the most obvious thing. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, Holmes almost immediately knows exactly what's going on. Oh, I remember reading um. this one as a, <laughs> I remember reading this one as a young man. And, you know, a lot of them, I when I first read them, I could not figure them out. Because a lot of the time, it's like, there's no way somebody could figure this mm-hmm. out before Holmes explains it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was one where it's like, one page into reading her telling her story i'm like oh well it was, it was definitely the, the stepfather. <laughs> there's no other character. Yeah. Yeah, you know, what What other random person would, would come in and do this, you know? Yeah, it's not the cleverest of all stories. It's not the most intense. And Holmes admits it to be so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. Uh, but Watson describing women in sexist terms is not new to the story. Nope. What makes the, sets this one apart in that light is the ending. Mm. That, that ending. Oh, yeah. Not Not great. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's an understatement just bad it's yeah bad ending. definitely uh leaves much to be desired this weird acknowledgement that of Holmes that you know she must be so deluded that she won't even accept this very obvious truth mm-hmm. which you know in some regards i mean we're living in a world today where we see people all the time <clears throat> just living in by delusional thoughts. Yeah. Right? True. Swaths of people just 
living a very deluded life that mm. no matter what evidence you throw at them, they deny. Yeah. But this one is of such a, so, you know, you, you can kind of agree with Holmes there, although he makes it specifically about women, that this is how women get deluded. Yeah. Which is just be like, it's just how people get deluded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also in this instance, it's such a specific thing. Like if he told her that, that it was your stepfather and he explained the entire series of events exactly as he did to Watson, like, come on, she would, she would get that, right? She would, mm. she would believe that. I one, one would, one would like to think so. Yeah. Um, it's, it's too specific and too personal a story for her mm-hmm. to not go like, oh, like, you know, if she believed these things about someone who she didn't really know, you know, or she was, you know, but it's such a personal thing that's just like, mm. come on, Holmes. This, yeah. Uh, I mean, you'd like to think he would at least make the effort. I mean, he's he's gone to the trouble to figure this all out and confront the person who did it. Right. Um, and he specifically says that that person is definitely going to commit more crimes in the future. Yes. So and worse ones. <laughs> Right. So he's perfectly comfortable having this woman continue to live with this man whom he knows is going to just commit worse crimes as time goes on. Yeah. And, which will obviously have effects on her. You know, it, it's, it, it's, and usually Holmes makes such an effort to protect his client at all costs and do right by his client, as we said earlier, with disregard to the law. Oh, yeah. But, in this instance, he chooses to leave his client in the dark. And it, it, it's not just problematic in the sexism behind it. It's a problem in just for Holmes as a character. Mm. You, Holmes just doesn't do this sort of thing. And you don't see him do something of this sort again, where he purposefully, he, 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 he degrades his client and purposefully leaves them uh, in the dark when the truth could be truly helpful to them mm-hmm. you know it seems untrue to Holmes, which i also find problematic beyond just the misogyny of it mm-hmm. yeah not not a shining moment for the character absolutely right. a fun note though um there's an author named um colin dexter who wrote a series of novels about inspector morse which are very were very popular in the in Britain in the in the 80s, early 90s. Um, but he once wrote a short story called The Case of Misidentity, which is a sequel to this story in which Mycroft reads Watson's story and comes back and says, Holmes, you got it wrong. Hmm. That uh, Hosmer Angel was a fiction that was created by the mother and daughter to make the stepfather look like a villain so they can get rid of him. What? But then, the tw- right. But then there's a further twist that then Watson actually finds out that Hosmer Angel was a real person who was attacked and robbed on his way to the wedding. Oh my God. And all, both, both, both Holmes, at, both Sherlock and Mycroft are both wrong. And it turns out that truly <laughs> the simplest explanation is the explanation that something bad did happen to Hosmer Angel. Good Lord. And he just never resurfaced? How bizarre. Uh, well, at well, least yeah. not, not in the week. 
Right, right, yeah. Uh, he Watson meets him because because somebody somebody brings him like sick and dying to to Watson's medical practice. Oh my gosh, which <laughs> is kind of a fun twist on it all. Yeah, well, and and in that case, you know, Holmes not having told her that that Hosmer was was her stepfather is not such a bad thing because it turns yeah. out not to be true. Yeah, um, huh. there is there is also I'm I'm trying to remember. I think it's in one of the. Sherlock Holmes collections by Lindsay Fay, who wrote a number of Sherlock Holmes short stories. She's very famous for writing Sherlock Holmes stories. I believe it's in her collection. She writes a story where Holmes, in connection to another case, admits that he made a judgment error in mm. this case. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm sure there are plenty of other examples of fan fiction and other writers coming in after the fact and trying to fix what is uh, trying to fix this ending. Well, it's it's definitely one that seems to be in need of some resuscitation. So, indeed, indeed. Mm. All right. Well, <laughs> I think we've been talking long enough. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> this is going to be longer than the reading. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to this edition of the Baker Street Readers podcast. As always, Tony, it is a pleasure to talk with you, and it is a pleasure to talk to you, Jay. And we will see you again, ladies and gentlemen, when we solve the Boscombe Valley Mystery. He didn't ooh. ooh. Yeah. <laughs> the podcast isn't complete without my ooh at the end. I love it. No, 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 no. <laughs>